And as they go, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we will be. And we will be looking at verses 1 through 8. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, as we have just sang again, over and over again, the joys of this season, the things that this season reminds us of, dearly Father, and as, even as we turn to the book of Isaiah and how it points so clearly uh, to your coming, dearly Father, help us to be wise in how we respond, help us to be understanding in how we grasp these uh, wonderful truths, that we may be able to see them over and over again, how great you are. In your Son's name we pray, amen. So there was a study that was done, and it said that on this day every year, on the 24th of December, men do this twice as much as women. And I'll just give you a chance to think, don't shout out what you think the answer is, but on this day, men do this twice as much as women. The answer is, my Christmas gifts. It is because they were saying, according to the study, that men, um, and now I'll just go offline on with the study a little bit, that men like to wait till the last minute so they've spent so much time and effort pouring over what to buy their loved ones, right? That that's why they do this last minute shopping, because they really want to put everything behind it. It is not because they have waited to the last minute. And if we were truly honest men, we'd rather shop on the 26th, because then things would be cheaper. But we'll still buy it at, a whole, at price now. But isn't it interesting as we begin to prepare even our minds for the Christmas season, right? We, I don't know if, you, if you've had the opportunity to go and listen to, to carols and you listen to music all around us. And many times I was even at places this year where I would literally go, I know the people that are singing these songs right now are unbelievers. Like I know that for a fact. And they're singing songs about the Messiah. They're singing all of these Christmas carols all over the place. And even there's places, if you look, that these are like literally pagan people setting up Christmas trees and everything else. And you're going, what's going on? As you drive down the road and everybody will just say, we need to get back to the real meaning of Christmas. And they put up a manger scene and you go, do you have any clue what you're doing? No, but they really love the story of Christmas. But I was listening to a sermon this morning by Vody Bach and he says, the world accepts the story of Christmas, but just not the theology of Christmas. We're okay with the story. You can even tell the story over and over again. But don't let that story actually play into my life and how I live and everything else. I like the concept of it. I just don't want it ruling in my heart. And it's interesting. As uh, one of the things that, if you want to say in a way, we brought as a family the idea of reminding ourselves that Advent is coming. And like this is whether you like it or not, this is kind of one of the things we said we need to remind our church that Advent is coming so we're not surprised by Christmas. So one of the reasons we do the Advent here is to remind ourselves of that Christmas is coming. And one of the beautiful things is we remind ourselves as Christmas is coming is the idea to be ready. You shouldn't, like as all of you men that are shopping on the 24th, it is not because church has not tried to remind you that Christmas is coming. All right, You had it ever since hunting season was over. We have been counting down the weeks, all right? Get your act together, right? And it's right in front of you. 
And then one of the symbolisms we do and why we have the guys read is to remind ourselves over and over again that God has called the men of the family to lead their family spiritually. And so we say we're literally going to try to demonstrate that as we have the men reading. And then if you've been paying attention in Genesis 3.15, one of the reasons we have the women light the candle is because in Genesis 3.15, it reminds us that through the woman, the light of salvation is going to come. And so why we have the woman standing there is not just because we got to like, what do we do with the lady in the group, it is because we remind ourselves again that the promise of Genesis 3.15 is literally being played out in the Advent season. And so these beautiful things we do, may we not just move on from and forget them, but remember, these, we do these things for a reason. And may we be prepared for it. And so, as I came to the Christmas Eve service, and you're going, what are we going to talk about? The idea of being ready kept going through my mind. Be ready for it so it doesn't take you by surprise. So obviously then the title of the sermon is going to be Be Ready, right? And let's look at the text that teaches us of the theology of Christmas. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough place a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withered, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, just to help us out here, we're in Isaiah chapter 40. And just a little math would tell you that there are 39 chapters before that come before that. And so one of the things we try not to do is when we're jumping into a, literally the middle of a book almost to make sure we understand the context. Because if you don't understand the context, you're going to have no idea what's going on. And so instead of starting a Genesis working our way all the way through here, I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 28. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to summarize. You want to turn to Isaiah chapter 10, though. So let's, you can get there while I summarize us all the way up until... So in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is giving the last sermon. He gives multiple sermons to the nation of Israel before he dies, all right? And in Deuteronomy 28, one of the things he tells the people of Israel is, there are blessings and there are curses. You obey, you will receive the blessings. When you curse, you will get the curses. And in Deuteronomy 28, it literally lists, this is what's going to happen, this is what will happen, all the way down to the very incredible specifics, like you rebel against God Nations will come in, they'll take your kids, they're going to destroy your land, and he just works his way through. If you obey, here's what you have. So then we get to the beginning of the chapter 1 of Isaiah, and Isaiah is a prophet that has been called by God to tell the nation of Israel, you have sinned and rebelled against God, and here's what's happening. He, at the beginning of the book, he says, heaven and earth have been testifying that literally what you're doing is wrong. And he says it's so plain in front of you. And as Isaiah has this call to call Israel to repentance, God is going to be telling the nation of Israel. Now at this time, there are, the nation of Israel has split. There's Israel on the top and Judah in the bottom. All right, We have ten tribes up north, two tribes down south. And Isaiah is saying to all of them, repent, repent, repent. 
destruction is coming. And let's look at verse 10, chapter 10 here, because here's what we're going to see, and we're not going to try to sugarcoat any of us. We're just going to read through what God is telling the nation of Israel and just draw application from this. So Israel has rebelled. Both Israel and Judah has been rebelled against God, and he's calling them to repentance. And here's what he is going to say. There's a nation coming in that he's going to use to judge the northern tribes of Israel, and that's called Assyria. And listen to what God says in chapter 10, verse 5. Now again, Assyria has not come in yet to destroy them. We'll, we'll get to that when they come in. Chapter 10, verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. He is using Assyria to judge the nation of Israel. And he says, against the godless nation I send him, meaning Assyria, against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and steal plunder and tread them down like the mire in the streets. But he does not do so intended. His heart is not, does not think so. But it is his heart to destroy and to cut off the nations, not a few. Literally, God is saying, I'm going to use Assyria to judge my people. And notice then down in verse 12, when the Lord had finished all of his work on Mount Zion, and Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria for boasting and looking in his eyes, saying, My strength of my hand I have done it, and by the wisdom, for I have understood, I have removed the boundaries of the people and plundered their treasures. Like a bull, I will bring down those who sit on the throne, and the text goes on. So literally what we have here is going, God is raising up the nation of Israel to judge his people. And as he raises up the nation of, of Syria, he's raising up the nation of Syria. Sorry, I said Israel. He's raising up the nation of Assyria to judge his people, and then he's holding Assyria accountable for their wicked, evil things that they are doing. And we stand in all of these moments because we see God sovereignly working in the affairs of man, holding man responsible for the decisions that they make. And we are to stand here and say, Lord, have your way. You are the one that is in control of all things. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 37. Now Assyria is coming. Sennacherib is on his way in. And Assyria is going to take out northern Israel, but God is going to spare Judah. The ten tribes up north are going to be taken out by Assyria. But God is going to spare Judah, and we just see it beautifully played out. Let's start in verse 26, talking about Sennacherib's fall. Because King Hezekiah has prayed for deliverance, and God has given him deliverance. Northern Israel will not be delivered. And here's what he says in verse 26. This is what the Lord says concerning Sennacherib. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I have planned from days of old. Now I will bring it to pass that you should make fortified cities crash in heaps and ruins. Their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and tender grass, like the grass on the housetop. Blight has grown on them. I know you're sitting down, I know you're coming out, and I know you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacence has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and I will put a bite in your mouth and I will turn you back the way you come from where you are going. And literally what we see here is God saying to the king of Assyria, you think you're coming in to destroy all of this? No, because of your arrogance, I'm going to literally drag you back home to where you're going. And all of these things are ringing in the ears of the people as they read this, saying God is sovereign in the affairs of man. So when God says something, what do we know is going to happen? It's going to happen. But what is the other beautiful thing we see? That mankind is held responsible for their actions, and they are without excuse. And may we just rest in that. 
Because so many times we try to unscrew the unscrutable when God says this is what is happening around us. And so then we turn to the time where destruction is all around us. Go to Lamentations 3. If, you, if I beat you there, just listen. Lamentations 3, 37 through 39, where Jeremiah is lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. Southern, the southern kingdoms have rebelled to the point where God comes and judges them. And here's what Jeremiah pens. While, when you read the book of Lamentations, you're supposed to smell the smoke of God's judgment in your nostrils. You're supposed to see and hear the cry and distress of people that have been lost everything. Women crying over the loss of their husband. Israel seeing the destruction that is going on. That is why literally in the middle of the book, which is not the passage we're going to, where we literally see Jeremiah saying, the mercies of God are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But here's what Jeremiah also pens in verse 337. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishments of his sin? These are what the prophets are telling us. And all of a sudden now, as we turn to our passage, in Isaiah chapter 39, because of man's sin, we have a lot of heartache and sorrow. Hopefully you're getting that by right now, all right? A lot of heartache and sorrow on both accounts. And when we get to chapter 40... These things have not happened yet. Chapter 40 through 55 are all talking about the return and restoration of Israel, but guess what has not happened yet? They haven't gone into captivity. And it's interesting, this is written in past tense. And why is it written in past tense, even if they haven't been sent into captivity yet? Because we're going to find out when God says it, it's as good as done. So when he talks about restoration, he can say it in the past tense, because even though judgment hasn't come, restoration will come because God has said it. And so now when we look at Isaiah chapter 40, you're going to go, these people need some comfort, don't they? And so this is why the call comes out. A time of favor has come. A herald or announcement is coming here. Point number one is the time of favor has come. Now the time of judgment in Isaiah has not happened yet to the, to the nation of Judah, but the comfort has already been promised and come. Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort my people, says God. This is a cry. It's a cry of comfort and a cry of rest to the people of God. Notice what the text says. Your warfare has ended. A time of peace has come. The time of pruning is over. The time of God's judgment on the people of Israel is over and a time of peace is in front of them. The time of warfare and the time of pruning, the point of it was to separate the people of God from idol worship. Because remember, the people of God had continually gone after the idols of all around them and God is bringing judgment into their lives to separate them from the things that they trusted so deeply. Because here's what would happen. When trouble would come to the people of God, guess what the people of God would do? They'd run to their idols and cling even harder to their idols. And so what God would do, He'd bring more heartache and more trouble to show them, your idols are going to give you no hope. No hope whatsoever. And so what this trouble would do is cause Israel to realize no hope found in idols. Only found in God and God alone. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. Your iniquity is pardoned. I mean, these here are words of celebration. The sin that you did that, de that demanded the judgment of God now has been pardoned. When we hear the word pardon, we need to hear words of celebration. 
As we look through this, it speaks tenderly to Jerusalem. Because guess what Isaiah has been doing before this? Saying, Israel, you are evil and what you're doing is wrong. Repent. And now all of a sudden this cry of pardon says, it's time to speak tenderly to you. Why? Because she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. We need to pause there because when you're reading through that, you may go, hold on a minute. They receive from the Lord double their sins, right? You've got to go, what does that mean? Because, so here's what, what's clear that this is not because other texts of Scripture help us. It is not that God said, all right, I'm going to punish them. Jesus came down and said, well, I'm going to punish them. They didn't talk, and so they both got hit a double whammy. All right, this is not scriptural, all right? Or that someone was like, oh, we did this, and then, oh, I didn't see that coming, and boy, you got hit, you know, low and high, Israel. No, I do not believe that at all, because that would go against the very character and nature of God. What I believe here, he is telling his people this. Your rebellion is so great. Not only have you rebelled against the natural, you see the world around us, what God has created, that natural revelation You, Israel, have not just had natural revelation given to you. You have had the law and the prophets given to you. And you've rejected what you can see naturally, and you have rejected the law and the prophets. We would also see other passages of Scripture that would say this. To whom much is given, much is required. What had the nation of Israel been given? Prophets who came over and over and over and over again and said, repent. Story after story after story of their national history reminding them of who God is and what did they do? They rebelled and said, we're going to go after these gods instead of the God of the Bible. And so now, there's another voice that cries. But before we get to what is being cried here, we need to take a moment, because verses 3 through 5 are going to be seen by the original readers as going to happen when God restores Israel back to their land again in the exile. When they come back from exile, when they come back from Babylon, they're going to be looking for this almost like Edenistic way of living. They're going to, you will see this in the minor prophets where they say, when Israel comes back, you're going to have a land flowing with milk and honey and all these wonderful things. And what we're going to start to see here is the understanding of biblical prophecy. Because when biblical prophecy is given, there's a, an immediate fulfillment, and then that we would call it a greater fulfillment that is yet to come. And so what we see here is when the exiles come back, they had a momentary peace, if you want to call it, but guess what they still did? Fell into sin. And so the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are all written to say that, yes, part of this is fulfilled, but the better is yet to come, pointing us to Christ, and some of us point us even past Christ to when he returns again. And so what we see here is John the Baptist is going to say a little bit of this. We're going to get some of these things going on, but we're going to get the ultimate fulfillment, part of in Christ and part when he returns as well. And so what do we see here? What is this voice crying out? Point number two, this voice is going to cry out, be ready, get ready, be prepared. One of the favorite things I loved doing when I grew up in uh, the East Coast, you would go to all these Revolutionary War areas, and one of the places we would go is we went to these Revolutionary War historical sites over and over again. Some of them I went more grudgingly than others, but when your parents are going, you have no other choice, guess what you do? You go, all right? I've smelled enough musty old buildings in my life to probably have some type of disease, but as we went to these things, there was a part of the Revolutionary War world that stuck out to me. There was a group of guys that were called Minutemen, and they were called Minutemen because in any minute they needed to be ready. 
So they were called for by the local towns to keep your gun ready. At any moment, you needed to grab it, so you needed to keep the powder dry, you needed to keep the shot ready, because guess what? If we need you at any minute, you need to be ready to go to war. These are the people that Paul Revere, when he was done doing his silver work, you know, you Revere wear people, when he decided to take on a ride and ride to the Lexington and Concord area there, calling all the Minutemen to get what? Get your act together, we're going to war. And these guys had to be ready, day or night or whatever. The same call here is a call to be ready. And what is interesting here, notice, Israel's deliverance is come. It is like the twilight when you're starting to see the sun starting to come up, but it hasn't been here yet. Because remember, their time of warfare is over. The beauty is coming, but it's not here yet. You can hear the sound of the approaching joy, but it's not here yet. It's on its way. And the call is to be ready. Well, what does it mean to be ready? I mean, are they supposed to grab their weapons and be ready? Well, no, their warfare is over, right? What do they need to be ready for? This is a call, a call of repentance and faith. It's, be, it's beautiful as the grace of God does its work in our hearts. What do we start, to, how do we respond? We first respond with a heart of submission. It's you and you alone that I will follow. It's also a heart of humbleness. And a heart that is submitted to God and a heart that is humble is a, God, is a heart that is repentant. So if you are not humble and you're not submitting to God, guess what you are not doing? Repenting when you are wrong. Because you don't repent if you don't think you've done anything wrong. This is what happens in every relationship we have that is hard to deal with. Because guess what one of you is not doing? Admitting you're wrong. Because guess what admitting you're wrong means? You need to be humble. If you've ever been married for two seconds, you know what that's like. But notice what's happening here. The wilderness, we're supposed to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight into the desert a highway. Every mountain valley shall be lifted up, every mountain made low, and the uneven ground shall be level, and the rough places a plain. So making the crooked and rough places smooth. Think about that for a second here real quick. When a king would come into town, when they would hear that a king is coming, everybody, because we didn't have, I don't know, we, I guess we have it whist dot here in Pennsylvania, we had called them pen dot, they were always filling every pothole that there was known to mankind, but they had, we have people that deal with highways. Back then, there was no one who dealt with highways, and so when the king was coming, everybody would run out and make sure the highway leading up to their town was actually travelable, because guess what you want the king to do? Come to your town, all right? And so this idea of the king is coming, get ready, is something that is, we see it all over the place. It was almost comical what happened a couple of months ago, even when we had some we want to call them dignitaries, coming from China to California. And in the San Francisco area, they real quick got rid of all of the homeless camps because we wanted to impress the Chinese as they were coming into town. And once the Chinese left, we let the homeless camps come back up. And they did the same thing in England. When the queen would go through towns, people would paint the front sides of their homes. So the queen would see that their home was painted. They could care less about this part the queen didn't see. And only the streets the queen went down, they painted we, see, we do this all the time, but what we see here is saying, make these things straight. Now the question is, 
This is a call to be ready. It's not an external call. All right? It is a call of self-examination of the hearts. We're not supposed to grab our shovel and start taking the mountaintops and filling the valleys and everything else that's going on there. This is clear that this is a call to the heart. Turn with me to um, Luke chapter 1. Because this is the same passage that John the Baptist uses multiple times. And in Luke chapter 1, when he is being proclaimed to be born by an angel to Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, verse 16... Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of their children to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom and to the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What was John the Baptist's job to do? Make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then we go a little bit further over, Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, what we see here is literally Isaiah, uh, Luke proclaiming this. This is speaking of John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of Isaiah. Hey, we're right there. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain shall be made low. The crooked shall be straight. And the rough places shall become level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is John the Baptist getting the people ready to do? Be ready, God is coming, repent. And so what we see here is the Messiah is coming, and the call, even John the Baptist, is a symbolic repentance through baptism. The gospel message, when it comes, even greater than that, the gospel message, when it comes, makes the heart straight. It straightens things out. Think about this for a moment. It straightens out the way we think. It reminds us of the things that would cause major issues are now what? Understood because the gospel and its truth comes, making the way plain. Christmas is a reminder, though, of us, isn't this? If Jesus comes... To show us the way to Christ, His coming then is the beginning of us understanding this. Christmas is a reminder every year that Christ came into the world to deal with sin once and for all. That's why tonight when we come back, we're going to light the center candle because the center candle reminds us of Christ. Because all year long, we've been trying to define, earthly speaking, what is there to be hopeful for, what is there to be joyful about, peace and love. We all love to define that. But the center candle reminds us that Christ is the one who defines it for us. Because you don't want my physical, human thoughts. You want what God has to say on that. Because my love is always, no matter how pure I can think in my mind, it is always some way selfish. Because let's be honest, all of us in relationships struggle with, what can I get out of it? If I'm kind to you, what are you going to give back? This is a battle we struggle with because we are just sinners. That's why you don't want my hope, you need Christ's hope. What are we going to see, though? What we're going to see in verse 5, it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What is the glory of the Lord? That is Jesus Christ. And notice what it says, And all flesh shall see it together. This is, again, that whole idea that all flesh shall see it together is a call that Christ came to save sinners. And where are these sinners? All over the world. 
So what do we do with the gospel message? We go all over the world because the glory of God must be revealed where? All over the world. So we go into dark places with the glorious gospel, proclaiming the light of the truth wherever we go. And we sit here and you say, wait a minute. Israel has not even gone into slavery. Israel has not even dealt with these things, but it is sure that the whole earth is going to see the glory of God. And so when we see moments like this, we have to say to ourselves, how will this happen? Because there are going to be moments in Israel's history that are incredibly dark. Moments where they're going to go, how do we, will we ever see the beauty that this passage is talking about? Because right now, literally, I am burying my loved one. Where is the glory of God now? What Israel would say. So when we live in uncertain times, notice what the cry is reminding us of. You see it at the last part of verse 5. The glory of the Lord, it shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Why? Because literally the mouth of God has spoken it. This is where we get to point number three, how we know it's going to happen. Literally, it will happen. All right? Let's go back to our Genesis 1 through 6. What do we see in days 1 through 6? God says it, and what happens? It happens. When, when God speaks, literally things that don't exist, exist. Okay, so if God can speak and things that don't exist exist, what does that mean about his other promises? All you have to say is God said it, and what do we know? It's as good as happening. That's why these things are written in the past tense. Because he said it, and what do we know? It will happen. And almost to the point is it is if it has happened, because it is so sure, because God said it. Literally, I think the only fill in the blank you have there is God said it. All right, that's all you need. All right, when the promise of God, you would go, God has promised me these things, and you would say, well, how do you know it's going to happen? The answer is because God said it. What else do you need? And the answer is nothing. But let's take a moment here and think about Christmas. You turn and you look at the manger and you go, that's salvation? Ba- this baby is salvation? Earthly speaking, we would say that baby is a baby unable to do much. But what do we know? That baby is going to bring salvation. Why? Because God has said it. Now, I want to take a moment here. And I want you to listen to the Word of God. And I want you to let the Word minister to your souls. And I want you to listen to the faithful character and good nature of God that is proclaimed throughout all of Scripture. I'm just going to read passage after passage here and listen to this ultimate promise because There are so many things in this world. There are so many days and things when you're sitting there and you look around and you say, what good is going to come out of any of these things? How do you sit there and say, there's good that can can come out of this? And you sit there and go, I don't know. But here's what we know. We'll go all the way through the Old Testament and just walk through this. Numbers 3, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Psalm 33, 10 through 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn... As I have planned it, so shall it be. As I have purposed it, so shall it stand. 
And Malachi 3, 6, For the Lord do, does not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed, even though you were a rebellious nation who deserves the rebellion against God, the punishment that is going to come. But because I am a God who does not change, that is why you're not consumed, because I am keeping my promise to you, he says. So, think about this as we listen to one of the most powerful Christmas hymns describing the promises of God. It goes like this. In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and it mocks us all. Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You almost feel like mocking goodwill, right? Let's just say yesterday was a long day, walking alongside of some families with the whole tragedy that happened. But notice, if I could take out a pen, I would just smash these words into the page, this next part. Then rang the bells, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. Why? What's the answer? God said it. And when God says it, what can you do? Trust Him no matter what. With peace on earth, good will to men. There are so many things in this world we will not get. But when we get back to this passage here, notice what the text goes on to say. It's going to contrast two things. The Word of God and us as human beings. And, and when you contrast these two things, you're going to, if you were weighing them, you're talking about like air versus incredible weight. Because notice what it says. The voice says, cry, another herald, and literally goes, what shall I cry? Here's where you cry. I'll summarize verses 6, 7, and end of 8. You're nothing. All right, you're here for a moment and gone. Quoting James, your life is but a vapor. All right, you're like the flower of the field. You're like the grass. You're here for a moment and gone. If the Lord tarries, generation after generation will celebrate Christmas here. Sitting in the same seats that you sat in now. Generation will come, generation will go celebrating Christmas. Do you want to know the only thing that will be the same? Christ. We are but a moment. He is eternal. Notice what it says. Grass withers, flower fades. Some of us are doing that better than others. But what do we know? The Word of God will stand forever. That is the anchor that we hold when we look at this world and say, why? Why this? Why that? And I don't want to say the only hope because that is more than just the only hope. The hope that we have because of Christmas is that, oh, the wrong may seem so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is why every single time you light a Christmas tree, you light a candle, you are literally proclaiming to the dark world that light has won. You will not defeat it. Do we remember these things going on? Because Christmas is a in-your-face to the evil of this world that God will win, because why? He said it. So even though it may not look like it right now, what is going on in this world will not prevail. God will. So we go, how do you know if you're ready then? 
for Christmas. Staying in the major prophets, go to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 reminds us of the opposites of trusting God versus trusting man. And it's interesting, it's used in, this is Judah's sin that was going on here. And listen to Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet who literally cried out for Israel to repent over and over and over again, but they would not. Jeremiah 17, 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Trust in man, it won't happen. It even goes on to say, it almost sounds like Psalm 1. As we get done reading Psalm 1, we're going to take a pause here. He is like the shrub in the desert, and he shall see no good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness, and in uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by waters, that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Does it sound like Psalm 1? Almost as if like the music that you sing impacts the way you talk type of deal. Just throwing that out there. All right. And so when we see this here, do you see the massive contrast between those who trust in man and those who trust in God? This is where when we have moments where you sit there and you say, Lord, help me. I don't know what to do right now. It's where James comes in and he says, hold on a minute, like, time out, James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all who ask. Because you don't want to be like those who do not ask, that are just tossed to and fro. And so what Christmas reminds us again of, we do not have to be tossed to and fro. We do not have to wonder what's going on in the world. Where's it headed? Where's it been? Where are we going? We know because the Bible tells us God is at work in this world bringing all things to His ultimate glory and end. And so what is in front of us when it says, are you ready? The question is, are you trusting in man or are you trusting in God? Because if you're trusting in man, you see Christmas as an opportunity for all about you. And so pride starts to come in. Arrogance starts to come in, and an unrepented attitude comes in because we like the story of Christmas, but the theology of Christmas says, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And there's your Savior. And we go, the lost and dying world, well, we don't like that part. We like these parts, but we don't want the whole theology of Christmas to come in. For those of us who know Christ, Christmas is a reminder. Because it's interesting, when the shepherds were told where the, the Christ, the Messiah, would be, what did they do? They didn't go, well, we'll hit it tomorrow after we have some sleep. They went immediately, right? Because the response of a believer, when they hear what God has called them to do, is to do what? Obey and to trust in what God has for them. And how does that look? A life that trusts God is one that humbly submits to Him in every area, repenting and being made ready when the Lord comes. Turn your hymn books to Song 609. We're going to sing that anyway, and I want to walk through this. This is the cry of every believer who truly is made ready for the coming of Christ at Christmas. What is the call of a believer? It's a call to Christ saying, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. 
When was he expected? Genesis 3.15. Come that long expected Jesus. What was he? Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. That's through repentance. Let us find our rest in thee. Only through repentance will we find our rest in thee. It's Israel's strength and consolation. Hope for all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. What causes the heart to long? A heart that is submitted to Christ. A heart that is repentant to long for what really matters. This coming evening, we'll walk through all of these and remind ourselves again, you will not have hope, you will not have peace, you will not have joy, and you will not have love unless you are found in Christ. Everything else in this world is fleeting. The call of Christmas is to come the long-expected Jesus. Verse 2, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thy own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts. Notice that. You need to submit to Him for Him to rule in your heart. This is the call of a believer. By thine own sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Notice it doesn't say, let me get to the throne first. It says, rule in our hearts. And as He rules in our hearts, then what does He do? He glorifies us, not because of anything good in Him, but because He is ruling in our hearts. Born to live in perfect perfection. Born to die that we might live. Remember, we've said this, and I'll say this every single Christmas. The Christmas cannot be seen. I wish we, like, if I was a better drawler, we would literally have the cross and the tomb behind this. Because when you see this, you need to see the cross and the tomb, because this is just the beginning. Like I said before, it's like, this is the first half. All right, like, hopefully here, we're starting to get it. Our huge day is Easter. All right, this is just the start of it, pointing us to it. All right, without Christ living the perfect life and dying on our behalf, this is just a really nice story with cute little animals that may or may not have been there. All right, with all these other things going on, and we miss it completely. And it goes on to say, Sacrifice beyond all measure, cause so great thy love to prove. Raised to life to seal our pardon, seated now on heaven's throne. Endless praise for our redemption. Worthy is the Lamb alone. That's what we are to boldly proclaim. A heart that is ready for Christmas is a heart that literally lives what these words are saying. And so my prayer is between now and then when we come back at 6 o'clock that you would spend some time of self-examination. The Christian walk is one of self-examination. It is one of continually examining ourselves daily of where we stand. We find our esteem in Christ. We don't find our esteem in self. What we do is we examine our hearts. Are we ready have we, are we living a life of repentance? And then tomorrow when we celebrate it, we celebrate with joy. Knowing that all these troubles that we see, all the ups and all the downs and everything else, by God's grace one day, will be made plain. And we'll look back on these things and say, they were just but a mere flicker of the eternal joy that we will have with him one day. But in the moment, let's be honest, there are hard moments. There are moments where we go, I don't understand this at all. But here's what I do know. That God is on his throne, working all things together for his glory. And those are the hopes we have. And that is the hope that anchors us in moments of great joy and also great sorrow. Because my prayer is, just like Jeremiah pens those words of great sorrow 
when he is lamenting, literally in the book of Lamentations, what does he say? The mercies of God are new every morning. And hopefully you remember, when we say new every morning, go back to Genesis 8, 20 through 22. What had God promised? Stability. So when the sun rises, what do we remember? He is being merciful and gracious to a world that is rebelling against him. In a couple of days, it's going to get cold eventually here. And what are we going to remember? What did God promise? Springtime and heat, cold and winter. And why I love living in Wisconsin, guess what? Sometimes we have those all in one day. And we remember God's promises are faithful. And that's where we trust him and him alone for it all. Let's pray, and then let's gather back here in a little bit after we sing, Come Long, Thou Expected Jesus. So, dearly Father, thank you. Thank you for this flock that, as we've kind of turned the page from one year to the next, thank you for the times we've had together. For the things you've taught us this year from your word, the things that at times can be hard, the things that at times can be things that necessarily we don't really like to hear, but because your word says it, we must proclaim it. And we must submit to it. And so, dearly Father, continue to shape and mold us to be more like you. And may we truly be ready, living a life of repentance, so we can boldly proclaim, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen.